those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then onto the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora koutou, and welcome back to the series. Today, local historian Lisa Trutman returns with her reliable mixture of thorough research delivered with great entertainment and enthusiasm. Filling out our Family History Month offering, Lisa tells the story of Aucklander D.B. Russell. Russell's tombstone promised that his works will follow. What precisely these works were is the question Trutman sets out to answer in her quest to follow the trail of the mysterious, magical, often dubious, but never dull D.B. Russell. Enjoy the journey. Haramai titahi ahua. I say, I say, I wonder why that is. And it certainly came about with regard to Mr. David Bruce Russell. Um, I went on a bit of journey with this chap, as you can see from the title page. Uh, it, was, it went to Mexico, it went to the Cook Islands, it went to the Far East and Japan and Calcutta and Burma and all that sort of thing. And all this for a man who was actually born in Shortland Street in 1862 from Glaswegian parents. So, yeah, because I'm talking today basically with the context of the madness of his, his story, but also how I went about to try to find and track these things down and track things down internationally. So, I kept coming across him for a number of years. I've actually been researching Avondale history since the 1980s actively, and every so often he would crop up. He would have all these brilliant ideas. A wow canal, a bridge over the Wow River linking Avondale with Tiatatu. Not quite where the motorway went to, but close. And everyone thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. He had all these wonderful ideas. But I never was able to actually stop and look and find out information about him. But essentially, when he came in 1910, um, he returned to um, Auckland from his journeys in Mexico and, and everything else and beca becoming a Mexican ranchero, as he termed himself, a bit of a superstar, which he would have loved. I wrote, I wrote an article on the on actually the Pollen Island aerodrome ideas that went around in the early 1930s. Early 1930s, everyone thought we we need to have a new aerodrome, and they looked at a whole lot of areas. One of them they looked at was Pollen Island at the end of Rosebank Peninsula. So his name came up. This was at the time when he was at his height of all of his ideas and his schemes. Now, 
the article, the wee piece that I actually wrote, ended up being not 100% right because I was going by the newspaper articles. It turns out that he wasn't an engineer, as he said. I thought, well, what's all this business about him being a Mexican ranchero? How did he get to Mexico? What's his story? How did he claim to have all these qualifications and that nothing seemed to have to come of it? The basic question is, how did he get from Auckland to Mexico? So I looked at his family background. John Russell, his father, married Isabella Cameron in Glasgow. They'd already had a kitty, so the kitty was born before the marriage. Uh, this was checked through with Scotland's, Scotland's people and the parish records at the time. Soon after the ceremony, they were on a ship bound for New Zealand. So his story, the Russell story, there was a number of children as well, fairly standard colonial story. Uh, uh, it was a colonial story of investment, hard work, Presbyterian upbringing, bankruptcy. All of the children, apart from David Bruce Russell, led ordinary colonial lives. One daughter actually married one of the gentlemen who claimed he was one of the ones to discover gold in Thames, and that all went to custard. Um, but other than that, go off into the bureaucracy, go across to Australia, have positions in Victoria, usual stuff but not David Bruce Russell, not the youngest one. He just decided to go on a completely different path altogether. He went theatrical. The interesting thing I found about trying to track theatrical folks is their annoying habit of changing their names all the time. And they went by, of course, they went by stage names, but the irritating thing is that we changed stage names as well. They would tend to use names that reflected the romance of their profession. And they take names from the romance countries, which is Spain, Italy, France. I had a three-year gap in D.B. Russell's career, which I needed to try to fill, and the gap when he left um, Auckland again to head for the Americas. But then one night, I found this to my great delight. The Auckland Star, 1887. When he was about to set off on the RMS Mariposa, and that's a picture of the Mariposa there, the Auckland Star decided to get a bit gossy. And they said, oh, you know, our Dave Russell, he has the assumed name of Senor Rosselli and Monsieur de Bruz. And I thought, oh, now, family historians know, once you have names, once you have keywords, off to, off to the newspaper archives you go. And that did open up. It opened up a lot of what he was doing in Australia and what he was doing, uh, actually going across the Pacific as well later on. So that was actually a wonderful find. So I headed across to Trove, papers past um, other cousin, a wonderful cousin from across the ditch. We've got a lot of time for Trove. Now Trove had this wonderful newspaper called the Lorgnette, which I found, dipped into theatrical newspaper. Love the language of the law net. Um, it faithfully reported every tidbit of the info drifting south to Australia from the steamy streets of Calcutta. Only board wages were doled out to the company, and this is the Ellen Melville company they were writing about, who never discovered where the rupees went. When matters became too warm to be pleasant, they departed unwept, unhonoured, and unsung.
The attendance then degenerated, disorganisation and dissatisfaction result, one or two seeding from the company and by any means possible finding their way back to Australia. But thanks to the lorgnette and the lorgnette's descriptions, I was able they, I tracked that split in the company. Some went to back to Australia, but some continued on to Japan. So yes, Russell's stories back in Auckland that I went to Japan, which of course in the 1880s had only just opened up. So that was definitely ultra exotic. Were quite true. He wasn't there for terribly long, and he was still singing in the back, and he wasn't one of the star players, but at least he was there. Russell turned up, returned ultimately to Auckland and was somewhat famous in 1886. He probably realised there wasn't much that much money in a colonial backwater. We're a bit hard up, they were a bit hard up down in Hamilton where he was hoping to set up his own theatrical company. So he headed back to Australia, did some work in the back blocks and then hitched up actually with a mother and her two daughters who said that they were going to do some singing um, uh, concerts over in Hawaii, in Honolulu, on the way to San Francisco. He says, oh, I'll join you, he says. I don't think anything happened. <laughs> it just, it's been odd, but I think it's just the theatrical folk. I'll just join you. It's fine. So that helped me tag him going from Auckland to Australia, from Australia then to Hawaii for a time, he, they were quite successful, and then to San Francisco. I lost track of him using American newspapers around 1889, somewhere in New York. And then suddenly, in 1891, he turned up in Mexico. The New Zealand papers, when he came back in the 20th century, talked of him as living in Guadalajara. So googling his name in Guadalajara, I came up with this, which is in Spanish. And I don't speak Spanish, not even colloquially. However, we are lucky these days um, as with, the, with, the digital, with the progression of digital access and tools and free tools online, I do recommend Google Translate. <laughs> it, it doesn't do a bad job. You can see with the translation, oh, they haven't quite got the colloquialisms correct or maybe quite got the grammar structure correct, but the gist is good. You can see so-and-so did something in this place with so-and-so and roughly what they were doing. It's good enough for research, short of knocking on the door at midnight to a friend you may hopefully have who knows Spanish. Can you please translate this? I didn't have that, but I did have this. Um, in this case, in the previous text, Russell was telling Americans to come in, enjoy the friendly Mexican regime, go get a hacienda or a farm, employ those Indians out there who were dirt cheap. They'll just do it for the bit of fruit, so you'll make lots and lots and lots of profit, and uh, the usual stuff from the imperial era. Come in, make lots of money, offer somebody else's back. They don't care. Get more money for us, off we go. I know it's making me sound like a bit of a communist, but it, he definitely was. Imperial capitalist was our Mr. Russell. Now, this I found was a boon. The newspapers.com, which is an ancestry site. If you don't have all the worldwide thing of ancestry, which I don't have, it's a pay site. But even for a pay site, it only cost me about $25 for a month, and that was cheap because I knew what I was going for, and I well used it for that month, for that $25. It was excellent. 
I like this site because it allows really excellent way of searching. You can narrow down your searches using a bar graph for the years and the periods. You can narrow it down by countries. They do include some British newspapers on here as well. They even include parts of papers past. You know, they spread themselves in. But the main thing I was going for was the American newspapers because I was tracking this chap. And I thought to myself, yeah, he, he, would, he would start affecting and making impacts on, on the American papers and getting noticed. So that's, yeah, newspapers.com. That's one of the easiest URLs I'm going to show you on this presentation because some of them are horrendous. <laughs> they really are. But I, yeah, I really can thoroughly recommend this site. It's a brilliant site. Uh, it allows for snipping of articles. You can save them to your computer files very easily. And the highlighting of the articles is, is uh, fantastic. The way that they do here, you can see I was searching for David B. Russell. Got the articles mentioning David B. Russell, and the context told me, yes, that's my man. Um, it's, this is something harder than in Trove, because Trove can dodge about a bit. Um, the British Newspaper Archive definitely can dodge about a bit with their blue squares. They can go all over the page sometimes. You may think, oh, we're going to get this really good keyword and it ends up either not being on the page or it's just missing. Um, and Papers Past even can sometimes occasionally let you down because of the OCR. This is actually pretty good. Um, it's, it's, it does help and, of course, it brings it out. So those of us who are getting a bit older with the eyesight, it makes it easier for us to see. So Guadalajara, the, uh, the, the, Chicago, the Chicago in Mexico. Russell's tail made it, 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 tales, it, it kept him going and he was ensconced in Guadalajara in the 1890s, the Chicago of Mexico, the state of Jalisco. Uh, that's a corner that the American papers really couldn't reach into because it is Spanish. And um, the, they, they sort of like dodged off all the English language papers. So I thought to myself, I wonder if there's a Mexican newspaper archive. I went looking on Google, found a very old Roots Chap, Roots Chat message board, which actually mentioned the archive. I thought, is it still going? This was a few years ago. Um, yes, it is. This is the archive in the National Library of Mexico City. And it is fabulous. It is wonderful. They allow free access of their newspapers down to about the 1910s and the very late 1910s. Beyond that, it's basically access in the library itself. But free online access down to that. Now, most of their newspapers are in Spanish. There are some English language papers catering for the American emigrates, uh, and particularly to do with Mexico City. So if you're researching anything to do with Mexico City, you don't have to go through the Spanish business if you don't have to. There are some English language ones, but this was, this was wonderful um, because it turned up El Continental, which was the newspaper in Guadalajara, bang on when my man Russell was doing all his stuff. And in Spanish, yes. So again, Google Translate. I'm glad Google wasn't charging for that because I would have wrecked up quite a bill. Um, as soon I, as the point is that you can search for keywords with, with this archive, the keywords would turn up. And as luck would have it, he didn't go mucking about with his name. He kept his name David B. Russell. So basically I was searching for D.B. Russell, David B. Russell, the full name, or just Russell, and it would turn up. Russell, of course, not being a Mexican name, so that stood out like a sore thumb. So during this time, Russell 
seems to have either purchased, which is not all that likely, or leased, which is more likely, an 8,000-acre um, hacienda called La Soledad, which was a ranch. It had marble quarries. It had fruit um, um, trees and orchards and everything else, lots and lots of native workers to do all the hard work. And he probably thought this was wonderful. But he still spent most of his time in Guadalajara, not actually up there, still in the American Quarter. Um, and and he, he actually was, was described as a rather convincing, silver-tongued Englishman. In the course of doing this research, I found a new word, boodler. A boodler is somebody who does bribery and corruption in an American city in the late, latter part of the 19th century. And this particular boodler, Mr. Kratz, was accused of taking bribes to do with a major civic project in St. Louis. Before he could be brought to trial, though, he decided to skip, skip his bail and, and skip the city. They were looking for him actually in Florida. They thought he'd gone to his cousin's orange, orange orchard and was hiding in amongst the oranges. But no, he decided to go the other way. He's in the train and headed all the way down to Jalisco and all the way down to Guadalajara, where there was no extradition treaty between Mexico and the United States. So he thought he was pretty safe. But the United States put a bit of pressure on him. Ultimately, ultimately he did have to return. But while he was in Mexico, he ended up being holed up in a hotel near the American Quarter, and our man Russell was one of those that was on the lookout for any sort of private investigators or sheriffs that might have been coming along the hill to pick, pick up Mr. Kratz for a bit of the money. And he, they were also saying, hey, 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 marble quarries in this hacienda up there, the last silly day, you can invest in those. Silver mines, you can invest in those. Railway thing, you can invest in that, because this man had money. He had lots of money. He wasn't the only one. There was a number of Americans, and he was one of the two. But yes. Um, so, so this is what David B. Russell did. He went from investor to investor with, oh, I have this brilliant idea. Do you want to fund it? Oh, you're going to give me some funds? Yay. Sorry, the idea didn't quite work out. Let's move on to another idea. That's what he was doing. So he was constantly attaching himself to Americans, keeping himself going. In another scheme, um, he left Mexico in 1910. He traveled all the way back to Japan across the Pacific looking for coal. Looking for coal in Japan. Resource poor Japan. The reason why you have World War II is because Japan had limited resources and basically the Americans and everything else are saying, we don't like your militaristic aspects. We're going to restrict your import of resources. Therefore, World War II and Pearl Harbor happen. Going to Japan for coal, the Japanese shipping company, which he sort of, oh, that's wonderful, those little Japanese have got a shipping company now, he said in one of his newspaper things. I thought, yes, we're used to you, Mr. Russell. He said, oh, those, he said, um, they said, well, we don't have the right kind of coal that you're after. He said, but, you know, have you tried, you know, where did you come from? He would have said New Zealand. Why don't you try going down there? There's actually lots of coal in New Zealand, so he did. He got, on the, he got on the ship, went straight down from Yokohama via Australia, and then ended up back in, in, um, in Auckland. While he was here, he apparently then got into a conversation with Henry Atkinson, former engineer for the Auckland Gas Company. He's the Atkinson of Titarangi, Mount Atkinson, the Atkinson Reserve and everything else, gave the land, that Atkinson. Now, Henry Atkinson at the time, around right about the early 1900s, 
he'd actually laid out a bit of a plan of how people could try to get in promotion and investment to do a canal along the Wau River. Um, and that didn't work out so well with the promotion company that came out of that. But by 1910, Henry Atkinson was still around and still had these ideas. This would be wonderful for Auckland if this worked, he thought. So somehow Russell met up with him. I will say he did meet up with him in 1910, had a chat, it planted a seed in Russell's head. But Russell then went back towards Mexico and said, oh, well, and sort of started working a ways of getting the coal from the Waikato across the Pacific to Mexico. If he could do that, then he would make money. But he still needed to think about it. Unfortunately for Mr. Russell, history got in the way because at the end of 1910, beginning of 1911, the Mexican Revolution started. Tracking his voyages on the 20th century, use, uh, was a family search was useful for this with their list of the passenger, um, 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 uh, the passenger immigration lists on their, on their site. Um, also, when I noticed uh, in looking at Archway that um, our Mr. Russell actually did some claims with the Mexican government for his losses during the Mexican Revolution. Initially, I thought only the files were only in queue up in England. I thought, yeah, I'm not going to be getting up there. <laughs> Uh, and then I saw that some files were actually in Wellington because the, the Wellington government, the New Zealand government, were actually helping out with this. And so some files are being copied from the from British to the New Zealand government. I thought to myself, yay. So that was part of my quick escape last September, just before Heritage Festival, bit of a break with all the craziness, and to go down there with a digital camera and photograph things like man. On fleeing Mexico, um, he bought land in Avondale and Canal Road. Fitting that he chose Canal Road, considering he was involved with canals, basically, from that point on. And he began a campaign which he would continue for the next 20 or 9 years of his life, basically, with some breaks. He, um, he, he, was, he basically set in his hat on the WOW version of the Waitemata Manukau Canal. Now, that is an image from the New Zealand graphic from 1901. In 1900, they produced one image, an artistic impression of, artistic impression of the Tamaki option, which would have gone just north of Otahu. This one is the West Auckland one, between Avondale on one side and Newland on the other. Not entirely geographically accurate, but it was an artistic impression. But this, people saw this in the New Zealand graphic, and it just caught their imagination alight. So much so, as I said, that promotion company that came just before him, they did start, they formed up, they got some money for their shares, not enough. They were idiots and they went along and decided to wholesale buy a whole heap of this land here that was a farm for £700, which was about £300 more than it was actually worth. And they said, don't worry about that, we'll get money from shares, we'll just sell more shares. They never sold more shares. So they, effectively, the company went bankrupt. And they were trying to sell that land for ages and ages and ages until finally it was taken up um, by the gardeners who sold most of it to the golf club, which is there today, the Titarangi Golf Club. So that's just as, as an aside. But so in the middle of all this, dreams that didn't work because people actually hadn't done the bottom line. In comes Russell, 
and starts and calls a meeting together and says in 1912, I have an idea. I will take up the old plans that were prepared by the company and it'll all get sussed. It'll all be wonderful. And they believed him. He had the silverest of tongues. In 1912, he decided to also add, add to his, his, um, his power, uh, potential power in the city. He married into the Bollard family in Avondale, which made him the son-in-law of MP for Eden, John Bollard who was conservative opposition at the time, and, but he eventually died in 1915. He became unwell in 1914. But he was the brother-in-law of Richard, Richard Bollard, future Minister of Internal Affairs, and therefore got the fast track into the Reform Party in the ears of the major people of the Reform Party and William Massey and Moe Pomare, for, for example, and he would just go back to brother-in-law Richard. Dear brother Richard, could you help me with this? Could you, could you tell me what job is coming up? Could you get me into this? And, and it was all that political favour, all through his marriage into the family. Unfortunately for him, this chap here, J.E. Taylor from Mangere, now he'd been pushing for the Tamaki Canal, which is what's pictured there since the 1890s. He'd been doing it the right way. He'd been holding meetings, getting, getting the businesses on side, getting the local councils on side, getting ultimately the government on side, showing them how wonderful it is. And he was actually going out there himself and physically doing bore experiments with the horse and cart. There's wonderful images of that um, in Sir George Grey via the, the New Zealand graphic. So he was doing it the right way, and there was going to be a commission on these canals just before World War I, got stopped before, because of World War I, and then people wanted it again, so they had, held it in 1921, covering the aspect of canals reaching from Waikato right through to the Kaipara Harbour. They interviewed Mr. Russell. He probably thought, oh, that's, this is fine. I've got all my ideas here. I've written on a piece of, piece of paper in full scale. And they took one look at this, and then they came away, and then they, they laid down the decision saying that the Tamaki route was actually cheapest and easiest to do, and the Wow route was going to be far more expensive. It relied heavily on, on trying to do something with the Manukau heads, and it just, it just wasn't going to happen. So that was basically the gist of it. Every time Russell would come along to somebody and saying, what about my idea? And they would send him another copy of this commission report. He must have had so many copies of this commission report sent to him. He already knew what this commission report said, but they'd still send it to him anyway. So you'd think from 1921, his whole idea was going to go, but no, no, he didn't give up on this at all. Um, Taylor, you see, passed away in late 1921. Atkinson, who actually came round to agreeing with Taylor, he passed away just before the commission's report came out. The only one left standing on the whole field was Russell. And he thought, I have no more competitors. I'm the only voice anybody's going to listen to. And he went for it. He just completely went for it. He unfortunately had very bad advice from the engineer he commissioned. The engineer said, don't worry about drawing up plans or specifications. The government will already have them. And, I, and I've seen this letter. The letter's actually lodged here at Sir George Grey Special Collections. And I thought, 
oh my God, that's why he went completely nuts. Because he kept hassling the government for the next next while, all those years since that, that, that point. You must have the plans. And the government was saying, what plans? Where? You must have the plans. You must have the plans. And he, he was fixated on that. Because his engineer assumed that the government would have the plans and the measurements and the, and the soundings and everything else. Lots and lots of letters to government departments and prime ministers then ensued. And the letters to all of these men. All of these men had correspondence with Mr. David B. Russell and usually about the canal. When um, William Massey died and there was the interim government, as soon as 1925 came, uh, came along and Coates actually won the election, congratulations, you've won the election, effusive praises to Coates. By the way, I've got this canal proposal. When Coates lost out um, uh, in a vote of confidence and Joseph Ward came back again, yeah, he got hassled by Russell, but Joseph Ward actually basically shut him down. So, yeah. So nothing further until uh, 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 Mickey Savage came, came to power, and that must have really upset Russell to try to write to, to Savage, because, of course, Savage being Labour and Russell being ardent Conservative, by that stage, most likely a supporter of the National Party, which succeeded the Reform Party, but he still wrote to Savage. Now, Savage, though, didn't take any nonsense either. He referred it through to, to the, the Minister of Public Works, and the Minister of Public Works was even more blunt. Well, no, we don't have that on our schedule. We don't have this, and I'm sorry, we just, we've got other projects we have in mind, and that's it. So at that point in the late 1930s, then Russell realised that things just were not going to happen. But in the course of all his campaign, he devised a fake newspaper, sent a copy of it down to, well, to Wellington, to the records, drew up this wonderful plan of what the Wow Canal was going to be, including the Inland Sea. We've missed out on the Inland Sea in Avondale. We could have had the Avondale by the Inland Sea. Uh, I read in an article from 1938 that he donated his papers to the Auckland Library. I thought, are they still here? Checked in the catalogue, yes. And out comes this box when I asked for it, and next door is the George Grant. I thought, this is cool. Look at this old box. But inside it was, well, not necessarily a treasure trove, but very interesting. These are his papers he decided that was worthy of keeping for posterity. His correspondence with his engineer, his correspondence with some correspondence with the Harbour Board, the Wow Canal, what it means to Auckland. This was a couple of notices he put on a special display. I've got a picture of that later on. He even ran for, tried to run for Parliament, tried to get the Reform Party to back him as the candidate for the electorate, and they didn't quite do it. And this is where he says, oh, there was a testimonial given to me in Guadalajara by the grateful people of Guadalajara. I've never seen this testimonial, and whether it exists or not, I don't, do not know. And considering his history, yeah, um, questionable. But yeah, that's, so that's what he, that's, that's was in that box. Also, things like this, he was so intent on this, he was obviously writing away for these kind of books, rolling lift bridges. You can see he wanted to have a rolling lift bridge across for the railway line going across the Wow, the wow River. So, yes. So basically the train would stop, the bridge would lift up, let things through, and then go down, then the train would proceed. But he was dead serious on this. Maritime Museum, I found, was another great place. Now, do not miss out the Maritime Museum in your research. And I really uh, emphasise that. They have lately got a printer reader for microfilmed 
copies of their correspondence in the Harbour Board files. And that's the example that I've got diagonally there and what I've just got on the right-hand side. Uh, they've only got one machine there at the moment. It has broken down once, but only once. But I really would recommend, that aside, their files and their paper files and everything else on Harbour Board um, information. If you've got any ancestry inquiries to do with the Harbour Board, the wharves, the maritime area, that sort of thing, go to the Maritime Museum. Do not miss it out. And I've got to, I definitely got to pass a copy of that book over to Danielle. Uh, down in Wellington, there was a hefty file, huge file, on the canal proposals, and most of it was Russell, with the endless letters he was sending to Mr. Furkett, the engineer in charge. Haven't you got the plans? What plans? It's rather sad, really. I mean, this is why I wouldn't call him so much of a con man. He just was someone who was fixated. And he just, he just thought that this would be his, his, his way of getting money. He, he was pleading in the, towards the end for, a, for effectively his superannuation, um, which he wasn't entitled to until he'd been resident here for 25 years because he had the broken residency. It only counted from 1911. Um, he died in 1940. Um, he had uremia for five days. Basically, everything packed up. Uh, he, he lies buried in the George Maxwell Memorial Cemetery in Rosebank in Avondale. Um, with the quote at the, at the end of, of his uh, side of the plaque, he rests from his labours and his works will follow him. Um, well, the works haven't followed him, really, but um, he definitely remains an interesting character, and, and I'm, I'm really glad that I spent the time chasing him. So thank you for listening. To find out more of D.B. Russell's story, click on the link to Lisa's book on our SoundCloud page. You can also contact her at the email address also on the page. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the talk notes.